Hello and welcome to another episode of FTD Talk. My name is John James and I am a writer and campaigner for male victims of female perpetrated domestic violence and an advocate for men's mental health. In today's episode, we talk to Dr. Chris Courtman, author of this book, Keep Pain in the Past. I talked to Chris about trauma. What is trauma? How does it affect us? The treatments for trauma. Chris is also the TikTok shrink, so I want to get into that too. Before I go, as always, please like and subscribe. The more the channel grows, the more people I can help. Thanks, take care, peace. Okay, welcome Chris to FTD Talk. Thank you, and thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be here and happy to share with, uh, with your audience and with you. Awesome. Can you just start us off by telling me a little bit about your career? Well, it's been a long career. Just last week, I celebrated 35 years of full-time private practice as a psychologist in uh, Florida, in the USA. Um, of course, I started when I was nine. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the very few fourth graders that year that were licensed as a psychologist. But <laughs> anyway, um, it's been a fantastic career because I've had the opportunity to facilitate now over 75,000 hours of psychotherapy. Wow. And uh, it's pretty much all I've done with my life as sat in a <laughs> session trying to help people. Uh, written, you know, four or five books. When I say four or five, there's one that's about to be coming out. Yeah, and that that's, mm -hmm. that's awesome. the book I guess we're going to be talking about today called yeah. Keep Pain in the Past. The uh, original title that I wanted for the book was um, changed by the... Uh, publishing company um it, it was going to be um a pain in the past uh, <laughs> how to get over the worst thing that ever happened and they said no no we have to use an action word like keep in the title because the metrics say that you sell more books when you use an action word in a self-help book wow. so we need to use the word keep and i said well how about a pain in the past keep your hands off my excellent title <laughs> so uh, we compromised and did it their way <laughs> um can you tell me um what trauma is and how it can affect us yeah sure you know there was a time when uh, people in my field said a trauma by definition had to be some kind of an event or an experience that was outside the norm of a, a human being's lifetime. That is um, a terrible flood or a hurricane or uh, a rape or combat or something that a normal life wouldn't feature. But that has changed now. A trauma can be anything that is overwhelming to a human being at the, at the occurrence. And um, let me give you an example of what, what I mean. Years ago, a good friend of mine became uh, a, a priest in his uh, church and an Episcopal priest, those are priests who are allowed to be married. And um, while married, he had this major love affair with the secretary of the church. When the congregation found out and his wife found out, she, the wife was devastated. And, and one morning when I went to visit them, she pulled me aside and she said, Chris, I think I have the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. As I read them, I was so traumatized by what had happened. And at the time she wouldn't have qualified for the diagnosis because you know, going through a divorce or an affair is not deemed to be outside of the norm. But now that has changed. So a trauma could be anything that overwhelms a human being. Could it be like a really small event? Well, it's very subjective, John, so that it might be small to someone else, but if the yeah. person's traumatized by it, it's not small to them. Mm -hmm. And um, are there certain people that are more vulnerable to trauma than others? Yes. 
That's clear. There are some people who are far more vulnerable to, to traumas than other people. And, and in fact, um, this is not in, in, in any way uh, a negative statement about um, females, but women are significantly more likely to suffer symptoms of PTSD than men are. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is because you know, it's not unusual for a person to go through one trauma or so in a lifetime, but males typically are not uh, inclined to be the, um, the victim of a sexual crime as often as women are. And sexual crimes very often culminate in post-traumatic stress disorder. It's, uh, it leaves a very uh, helpless kind of um, sensation within the, the victim, whether it's a, a male or a female, anyone who's sexually violated, it's easy to be traumatized by the, the ugliness of, of uh, a bigger, stronger person taking advantage of me sexually, essentially a rape. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you want to shatter the mind of a child, for instance, uh, sexual abuse is the way to go. Um, what you wouldn't know about me, perhaps, is that I have had many, many people who suffered from symptoms of what's now called dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder. And what 100% of them, 100% of them had in common is that they were all repeatedly sexually violated as children. That's a way to shatter the mind of a child, you know, before puberty, mess with them, you know, sexually again and again. And what they do, and this is a brilliant defense, John, what they did was they, they, they created other parts to help them carry the heavy load of all that was happening. And it was brilliant because if this is going to happen again and again, Jennifer's in bed at night and father comes in at 3 a.m. to do his thing with her. She leaves mm -hmm. and she creates a part of her name, Cindy. And Cindy comes out and takes the abuse. And when it's over, Cindy leaves. Jennifer comes back sometime and goes to school the next morning as if nothing ever happened. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant way. But like, like, like paying by credit card, the bill comes due later. And then there's different parts and there's memories and there's feelings and stories to be told and healing to be done because those things are traumatic to a child. And is it true, talking about personality disorder, is it true that the original personality doesn't know the other personalities, but the other personalities know the original? Very often that is true. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people that, that came into my office, I didn't know and they didn't know that they had other people. And then sometimes I would be slipped a note and said, what are you stupid? There's, can't you see there's several of us here? And it's like, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. It's not like you change colors every time you. <laughs> and that surprises me actually, that um, women are more vulnerable, vulnerable than men because I would, I don't know, but I would assume that women have better support structures than men. Often cases, women do have better support and women are more likely to have friends according to the research and they're more likely to have best friends and they're more likely to have several best friends mm -hmm. than men are. And that is all very important in terms of living a healthy life. But when it comes to the diagnosis of PTSD, it's almost two to one women outnumbering men. Which, which is also true about depression, by the way. With those support structures then, is, it, is there a gender difference between the healing from trauma? I don't know uh, a research study or a statistic on uh, if women heal better or faster than men. I, I am very, the reason I'm still doing this after 75,000 hours, John, is because I've seen so much healing. I'm not there for the horrible stories. I'm there for the healing. Yeah. And I've seen men and women both heal from trauma by being brave enough to face their stuff. And, and that's, that's a message that I would want to preach today to anybody who's listening to the two of us. I want them to know right away there's hope. And whatever they went through, there's somebody who went through worse stuff who today is better. 
and there's hope for you is the bottom line. Awesome. And are humans the only the only ones that carry trauma, the only beings on earth that carry trauma um, in the form of PTSD? You know, I am no more uh, an expert on animals than uh, my friend, the lawyer, but, <laughs> but I do know this. Animals can be traumatized and they can carry trauma. And there's research on that. I read a little bit about it. And, you know, one of the things that a lot of us know about is uh, rescue dogs. And many rescue dogs show up traumatized by whatever <laughs> ordeal they were put through before they found us. There's a wonderful bumper sticker that says, who rescued who? You know, because <laughs> a lot of us feel more blessed having brought those animals home. But, but they, they carry trauma. And sometimes even uh, you'll see that trauma uh, manifest itself if uh, somebody raises their voice, even if they're not yelling at the dog, the dog might cower because wherever they were before, somebody hurt them. Yeah. or you know they experience things and so yes in their their brains they they carry uh the trauma with them they don't have the advantage of being able to work through or talk through but they can feel the love and they can have the consistency and the safety of a new home that helps to relax their perception of life and reduce the stress on their nervous system just like we do so yeah you can even you can do a lot of healing work by, by adopting, by rescuing a dog. <laughs> um, I'm a big animal lover, so I know the, uh, the uh, healing properties of owning a dog, so. We have great research on that. We, you know, we know that even bringing a dog in, a, uh, in an ALF, assisted living facility or, or a nursing facility of some kind. Yeah. When, when people just see the dogs, they light up like Christmas trees and, and, then, and then they and they pet the dog. We have research that says that just petting an animal reduces your blood pressure. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And you know, the animals love it. They'll sit there all day while you pet them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've worked in, in care for a very long time and I've seen a lot of um, uh, joy brought to the residents by dogs. Absolutely. And, ca and cats and any animals that have been brought yeah. in, to be fair. Yes, yes. Um, why do you think that we, more often than not, can't move on from trauma until therapy? It's a beautiful question, John, and I appreciate you asking that, because a lot of people are stuck because they don't know what to do with the trauma. Um, it doesn't go away by itself. And, and we've been taught this, this horrible myth that says time heals all wounds. And you wanna know the truth, time just passes. And it mm. passes pretty quickly when you get old, I, I'm here to say. <laughs> but, but time passes and that does not heal your wounds. To, in order, healing is active, it's not passive. In, in order to heal our, our wounds, if you said, give me, um, a two word summary in what, what brings about healing, I would say letting go. And letting go is part of an active process. And, and it's so difficult sometimes to let go because that means I'm saying goodbye to something or I'm accepting something that I don't want to accept. So, you know, if, if we talk about uh, trauma, very often what I'm saying when I let it go is that this happened to me and I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is, this is not okay that this happened to me. I cannot accept that this happened. It was unacceptable. I was a virgin and this man raped me and I'm, and I'm enraged about it and I hate it. And I, you know, and, and that's like me going to war with the past. I yeah. can't, or I can't win that war. What has happened is, is, is no more likely to change than the fall of the Roman Empire. It's history, it happened. Yeah. So what has to happen in order for a person to heal is that they have to process their trauma. They have to remember it, they have to bravely face it. They have to the feel what the feelings are. Every feeling that's there, they have to express those feelings. They have to release those feelings. And finally, they have to reframe the trauma so that it's something that they could assimilate and it stops being front and center 
in their lives. It's one thing they went through that the, they came out of, and now they have the ability to do things to help other people, or they mm -hmm. some way they put it in a good place. Like, because I went through this, I'm now able to do these things with my life. Example, because I, I know that's not necessarily easy to interpret. I'll give you one story out of many stories. This one was in an earlier book, not in this book. But a woman came to me after um, she had this experience where she um, went to, uh, to sleep one night in her apartment and she was awakened by a man wearing a mask with a knife. And to make a long, ugly story short, he stabbed her 14 times and left her for dead. Jesus. And then he disappeared and into the night. Um, she managed to crawl around and, and get some help. And a couple of weeks later, they found out that this man was actually someone she had started dating. And that was, you know, a horrible betrayal and trauma to say the least. Yeah. So this woman had every possible symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder that you can imagine from um, intrusive recollections of the event, uh, you know, nightmares and uh, flashbacks, and but also wanting to avoid uh, um, anything that would remind her of that, which would be what? Like nighttime, <laughs> darkness, men. Mm -hmm. Halloween was terrible because people put on masks. She doesn't yeah, like, yeah. you know. So it's just so many, so many symptoms. And you know, we were able to do some really great work. She did fantastic work. And um, she, she reached a place where she not only put it in a better place, but she was able to go into the schools and talk to the little girls. It's like, look what you did. Look what you did. You went from being a basket case, you know, where, where you couldn't function well. You were overwhelmed by the trauma. Understandably, it was a mm -hmm. terrible trauma. But you, you not only assimilated that into your life, but then you turned it into something where you had a gift to help other girls. You can help other people because of you working through the trauma. You know, God bless people like that because <laughs> they make the world a better place because of something ugly that they went through. But that didn't happen, John, because time passed. That yeah. happened because she was brave enough to work through that and, and finally put away the ugliness of the event and then face every one of the symptoms that she needed to face. And I know that when uh, when I went through um, my trauma after abuse, I went to, you saying about um, leaving things behind, I went to um, India yeah. to, to just get away from everything. And I met a guy out there and he said, think of life as walking. To walk, you have to leave one step behind to move forward. If you don't, you'll stay in the same place forever. So you have to leave something behind to, to take your journey. I like that. I could uh, tell you liked it too. Yeah, it was awesome. And it was really, um, really powerful to me. And You know what else I like about that? Forgive me for interrupting. Mm -hmm. I also like the fact that he didn't say just stand there and eventually you'll move. He said, you have to do it. You yeah. have to walk. Yeah. It's active. It's not a passive. I'm waiting. Where's my healing? You know, yeah. I, I have to do something. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's, that's right. Cause the past doesn't exist apart from in your own head. So I do think you have to move forward. Well, obviously you've done some good work yourself. So, or you wouldn't have your own show to, to talk about. <laughs> True. Good for you. Um, could you explain what the difference is? We've talked a little bit about PTSD. Could you explain what the difference is between PTSD and complex PTSD? It's a very sim simple difference. Complex PTSD, we just put that one word in front of it, is uh, when the uh, horrible events happened over and over and over again. Oh, okay. For, for my multiple personality patients, they weren't raped one time. They went through one terrible abusive story after another, after another. 
And when I'm working with them, I don't know how long, I don't know how far this thing goes down. Like, look at this, it's on a, oh, geez, how far does this go down? They got story, and I keep meeting new alter personalities. And the alter personalities were carrying all the memories. And they go, I got something for you. And then they tell me this horrible story. And the other, the main person didn't know of this story because they farmed it out. They kept creating other parts. And it was one terrible story after another, after another. But I got good news for you. Well, if, if there's one thing that, that I'm really proud of in my career is that I've had 17 of these people who were many who are now one. And it took awesome. years in each one of these cases, they had to tell me, every, they had to empty their duffel bags, every nasty sock <laughs> and garment had to come out and be cleaned. And, and this is no exaggeration, it's just fascinating. I'd have a 52 year old woman in my office and all of a sudden she would get up out of her chair and go hide underneath the desk and sit up against the wall and she would come be, be a six year old boy named Eric. She was just a woman in her fifties. Now she's, and I go, and I say, oh, that's, and Eric would always grab the snowman and start rocking in the corner. And I'd go, hi, Eric. And then, and Eric would say, I got to tell you something. And then out would come a horrible story. And the whole story would come out. And then Eric, <laughs> Eric would leave. And then this poor woman's under my desk. And she goes, I don't know how I got here, but help me get out because... <laughs> But the stories had to be told. They remember, feel, express, release. That has to happen. And by doing that, eventually the person would say, well, I'm done. I did what I needed to do. And then we'd be able to blend them, merge them, integrate them, whatever you want to call it, back into one person. And they, it was an active process where they had to tell their stories and feel their feelings, express them. There would always be tears, you know, boxes of tissues because it would be a terrible thing they would tell me about, a horrible scene. But the good news is by telling it, by, by releasing the feelings, it's like they were done with that story. And they had more of them, but it would just be, I don't know how many you got, but we'll do. It's not me creating these things. I'm just gonna be the safe place mm -hmm. for you to come in until we're finished until we're finished, until the many become one. And, it, and it, I've, I saw it happen again and again. And it's like, if these people can heal, who had many terrible things happen to them, hey, then there's hope for every one of us. The woman I just told you about uh, a few moments ago had one bad scene, albeit it was a bad scene with the man with the knife. Yeah. But these people have had many, many bad scenes mm. because they were in a, in a really ugly situation or some type of a devil worshiping cult where they did terrible things to children repeatedly and all these stories had to come out for them to heal does it is there something in a person that makes them create those personalities first of all every one of these people that that had that were were intelligent enough to do that and and without even realizing they were doing that there, this is a process called um disassociation or we, we've used the word dissociative so we dissociate we kind of uh, separate our minds from our bodies and i want to tell you that it's the most normal thing we all dissociate um, i do it when i drive down the road i do it when i jog down the beach i leave my body i don't go right step left step breathe I'm, I'm, in, I'm a rock star in a concert and you know, I'm listening to music, I'm jogging along. I'm on stage singing in front of thousands, in my mind, not in reality. In reality, I'm running down the beach, but I'm dissociating from what my body's going through. Mm -hmm. My mind is going elsewhere. So if you're a little girl or a little boy and someone's doing something terrible to you and you can't leave, what you can figure out is my mind can leave. You can do whatever you want to my body, but my mind is gone. Like you don't get my mind and you don't get my soul. You're gonna do what you're gonna do to my body, but I'm leaving. Okay, so what people do if that happens often enough is they not only learn how to do that almost professionally, but they learn how to get other people. They can create other people to take it. And, and brilliantly, they, they, they create a cast of characters that they need. Some people have created males in their system to take certain types of abuse that they think a oh, boy would be better at this. So they create a boy alter. Or sometimes they, they create someone who's way older and more wise than they are. 
little girls create older women or men rep who represent wisdom. And that's the person who, who provides uh, perspective sometimes. And I'll, I'll ask once I know that that one exists, like, shouldn't we talk to wise Sarah about this? And then Sarah would come in and she sounds wise and, and much older and more together. It's all created. I mean, they're not real. They don't have their own yeah. social security numbers. <laughs> but, and I can't charge by the personality. I don't <laughs> but but they're, they're there all to help carry the terrible trauma. And, and, and that's how brilliant the survival uh, mechanism can be. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, a lot of these people would be either institutionalized or dead because they could not carry all that terrible stuff themselves. So they would have overdosed or committed suicide or, or did something because they couldn't take it. But because they had many to, to pass these things out, somehow they could survive. And then one by one, they, they tell their stories. That's fascinating. Absolutely. Fascinating. And I would, I, you know, I had no training. I had no, they trained me on the job. You know, the, the first person, <laughs> Um, she, she calls me uh, while I'm in session, so I can't take calls. I come out of session, you, gotta, you have to call Shirley. So um, this is a book that's coming out soon, by the way, um, telling these stories. I, I call Shirley back and I say, uh, hey, Shirley, how's it going? And she goes, I'm not Shirley. I go, come on, I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> don't play games. She goes, I'm not playing games. I said, oh. Well, who am I speaking to? Julie. Oh, well, Julie, um, what did you want when you called me? I didn't call you. Shirley did. <laughs> I'll leave a message that you called her back. It's like, wow. what? And that was my first introduction into this. She wasn't playing games. She had learned from all the abuse to go in and out and have all these people carry it for her. And what was that scary for you? With it being your your first introduction to that, <laughs> at times, at times it was, at times it was. But when I started to understand how it worked, it all made perfect sense. And I, and you know, she, she taught me so much about how a normal person reacts to trauma, because it's overwhelming. We find ways to block it out, and so our job as a as a clinician is to take what was blocked out and tell me a little bit at a time, let's get through this, bring it all out. You heal by bringing it out and, and expressing and releasing the pain that goes with it. Now, what's really fascinating is that it's not like everybody has the same uh, focus in trauma. For instance, I, I worked with a family once who went on vacation to uh, a, another country, I believe it was like Honduras. And the first day they were renting this house, the first day that, that they were there, three men with hoods and machine guns broke into their place and tied them all up. And they looked like they were gonna execute them. And they started asking questions about money and, and maybe drugs. And, and eventually, they realized that, oops, we got the wrong people. So sorry, <laughs> a bit of a mis oh, my bad, <laughs> a bit of a mistake here. So they warned the one person, they untied one person and said, we're out of here and, and, and they took off. And so the one person got to untie the rest of their family and you know they left the country the next day. That was enough of that <laughs> vacation, but Here's the point. They all came in as a family and they weren't all traumatized by the same thing. They had different ideas of what was traumatic. Yeah. And the father, for instance, was like, these are my, this is my family. I should take a bullet. To, I should fight. I should do whatever I need to. This, what kind of a father am I? I haven't said, you know, that's where he was. There was a girl who was on a hammock on the porch and she was sleeping, but not really. And she's thinking, should I wake up and go be with my family in there? Or should I keep pretending like I'm sleeping? So they leave me 
And so she was stuck on that. Everybody had their own perception of what was most traumatic. Mm -hmm. So in order to help them, it wasn't like a one size fits all. Everybody had to tell me what the hard part of that experience was for them. And then cry about that and work through that and let that go. Because if you don't let it go, then those guys are coming back every night in your sleep. You know, when we let something go, they lose their power. Awesome. Great. And I mean, like the, like the, uh, the guy told me in India, it is about letting go, isn't it? It's, that's, that's the way you can heal. Um, when I was in therapy, I was given the choice of uh, CBT or EMDR. Yeah. Um, can you just explain what those are and, the, and how they can help? CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is widely considered to be um, the most helpful kind of therapy for a lot of different kinds of uh, disorders. Um, With cognitive behavioral therapy, you are always taking into account how you're thinking and what you're doing and changing those things as much as you can in order to change how you're feeling and to change the the outcome. So if you were a depressed person, we would be looking for ways that you maintain that depression and how you even created that depression. We now know, for instance, depressed people think differently than non-depressed people. You know, they, they tend to blame themselves more for things. They tend to globalize their issues. Like if you got an F on a test, you know, a healthy person would say, boy, I blew this one. I didn't study enough and I got smushed on this. A depressed person would say, look at this. I told you I'm a failure. I'm really bad at it. You know, they would globalize it. And then the third thing that depressed people do is they they forecast doom and gloom into the future. You know, so not only am I bad and I, I'm globally bad and I always will be bad. I'll always be an addict. So depressed people have a way of thinking themselves into that. So when they get into therapy with CBT, we're always changing the way they think, you know, and then, and then the behavioral part is um, teaching them other kinds of things like um, uh, exercise or uh, changing their breathing or, you know, facing things that they're afraid of in small doses, you know, successive approximations. You know, we don't just throw you in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and say, swim, baby, swim, if you're afraid of drowning. Maybe we put you in a little kiddie pool up to your ankles and say, okay, get out. And then we go in a little deeper onto your shins. All right, come on out. So we, we, you know, little by little, we approximate the goal of being in water and not being afraid. Um, So CBT for trauma incorporates a lot of different things, including we have to deal with what the trauma was, but we also have to learn other kinds of skills. Like the woman I shared with, um, who was attacked by the hooded man, we had to use CBT to change her thinking about things like all men are not gonna do this. You know, we had to change that. All men are not dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that, he was in your house doesn't mean you could never have a uh, man over to your house again. We just have to make sure we know who the guys are before, you know, so eventually she got married and she's happily married to a good guy, but that, that required CBT, you know, changing of the thinking. Um, EMDR is different. That's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And, and really what it is, it's about um, taking the trauma and doing different activities, sometimes tapping, sometimes moving your eyes to follow a pencil, things that um, sometimes help people quite a bit to release their trauma. So it's like taking the trauma and eliminating its, its or reducing its impact on a person. Mm-hmm. Um, with CBT, sometimes they'll ask people to um, imagine the trauma over and over and over again in an effort to uh, kind of exhaust the mind's um, uh, stress response to it. Like you become habituated to it, you know? So so they'll they'll make you, you know, watch it again, watch it again, watch it again until, you know, it stops freaking you out. Um, 
I don't, I don't use EMDR. I have nothing really against it, but I have my own ways that work. And my ways um, are always about having somebody face what happened, feel express release. Um, mine uh, is a contribution of, of, of a number of different theories that have all culminated in my little uh, Fritz uh, that I wrote about in the book and the Fritz being mm -hmm. the five steps of remember, feel, express, release, reprocess, or, or reframe, sorry. And, and when people are able to do that, they can let it go. But I have a, a, a couple of techniques that I use again and again to help them to release. And one of those is letter writing, which is incredibly powerful to, you know, to say goodbye to someone or something or finish a finish a rape or um, something that's been really traumatic to tell somebody I'm done. Um, a story in the book is a, a, a young lady who was abducted at gunpoint and held uh, a prisoner of some a man for three days. He raped her and he had her, had her uh, in his confines then. And, and, you know, when I met her, she was like, 21 years old and this happened when she was 19 and it was consuming her as as you might imagine mm. but i had her tell everything everything and when she would stop in a story and say you know um then he put it in my mouth i said he he put what she said you know i said i might but you need to tell me and she was quiet for about 10 or 15 minutes because she couldn't say it you know why she couldn't say it? Because the moment she said it, it was real. Yeah. She could talk around it. I don't want her to talk around it. I want it to be real so she could express it and release it. So, you know, I've, I, I felt like such a bad guy making this poor young lady talk about details of being raped, but it was for her advantage. Remember, feel, express, release. And then I had her write a letter to this man and, and the letter word for word uh, is in this in this book. And it was just this beautiful, empowering thing where she said, I'm done with you. I'm not gonna wake up and see your face over mine anymore. I'm releasing you, I'm done. I'm not, I gave you the one most precious thing I had and she was referring to her virginity, but no more will, will you be the one to dominate my days. I'm, <laughs> I defeated you. She said, I won. I'm moving on with my life. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to, to finish this thing and, and move on. Otherwise, if she hates him, then he controls her. If yeah. you hate somebody, they own you. Our goal is not to hate the perpetrator. Our goal is to release them and, and to move on. So, so part of my... Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. I have so much to say. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I'm sure you can see that. But yeah, sure. Fritz Perls um, was the founder of Gestalt therapy. And um, the Gestalt of something is the whole. And he was always writing about um, unfinished business and helping people finish things, meaning putting it in a place where a person was okay, they could accept it. Because once we accept something, and I don't know if he knew the science behind this, but we now do. When we accept something, it shuts off the stress response. Mm -hmm. The stress response is that which ages us and promotes disease and death. It's like a five-step process. It begins with the alarm reaction. I just had an alarm reaction a, a week ago because I'm driving down the road and right behind me comes a state trooper and I'm going, oh, no. He's going to pull me over I feel my heart racing. And then a really cool thing happened. He moved into the other lane and pulled the truck over. I felt bad for the truck driver, but I was released, right? So I felt this alarm reaction and we could have, we were built for that fight or flight uh, alarm reaction. As long as we have it occasionally in small amounts, it's not going to kill us. The problem is most of the stressors today are not like that. Most of the stressors go on and on and on and on. Like, you know, a, a high conflict marriage becomes a high conflict divorce or the kid who's sick, nobody can find a diagnosis or a treatment or we have economic problems 
we're working hard, but we're not making enough money. We're not catching up on our bills or whatever it is. It, it, it makes the stress go from uh, alarm reaction to resistance. We're continue to fight and fight and fight in high gear. Then it goes into exhaustion where there's a breakdown and then it goes into disease and then to death. That's how the stress response takes its toll on human beings and animals too. So we shut off the stress response when we accept something and it stops having power over us. And we've done it a million times in our lives without realizing it. We'll say something like, ah, it's just money. Money comes and goes, oh. all right? Or, um, you know what? The doctor just said it was benign and, and, and you believe her. And so you let it go. Or, you know, the, the wife says, I'm really sorry I left. I, I was wrong. I want to come back. Please, please take me back. And, and, and you believe her and you, you know, the nanny says, I'm going to forgive the children for tying me up to the pole in the living room. <laughs> I'd like my job back. You know, all it takes is for us to let something go. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, you know what? I can't control this. It's not mine. I'm giving it to God. Or I'm giving it to the universe. Or I'm letting it go. There's nothing I could do. I've done everything I could do. It's not mine. I'm giving it to the judge. Whatever the judge decides, we'll go with it. And do you, do you think that people... Uh... The, especially these days, create their own stress by taking something that wouldn't, they wouldn't normally stress about and just think overthinking and overthinking and overthinking until it becomes something. You know this from experience. Yeah. <laughs> you've done that yourself and or you've seen a lot of people do that. And so the answer to that is absolutely mm -hmm. all stress. Here you go. All stress begins with the perception of threat to something I'm invested in. Yeah. I, I had a chance last week to speak to um, children at this gifted school. It's one of the um, top schools in the U.S. It's number one in Florida. It's called Pineview. And I'll ask the kids, they ask me to go in there every year and work with them on their anxiety. And I ask them, how many of you have a lot of anxiety? These are 14 year old kids. And um, how many of you have, have like off the chart anxiety? And like three quarters of the class every year have off the chart of anxiety. And I'm, I just shake my head and say, you are brilliant kids. You're in the top one percentile or you wouldn't be in this school and yet you're sucking the joy out of your childhood by being this anxious. And I want them to understand what anxiety is. It doesn't come from out there. It comes from me perceiving a threat to something I'm invested in. And I'll say something like, I know why you're anxious. You're all anxious because the World Series is starting tomorrow night. How many of you? And not a single hand goes up. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's the World Series of baseball. You're we don't care about baseball. That's exactly my point. You have to be invested and you have to perceive a threat. That's the creation of stress, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. It all comes from perceiving a threat. So when you say people do that in their minds, they do. So much of what we worry about doesn't happen. And so much of what we worry about doesn't add up to a hill of beans in the scheme of things. <laughs> But our body, our nervous system doesn't know that. It responds to the mind. And the mind says, threat, threat, threat. That's terrible. It's horrible. It's catastrophic. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? And, and our bodies respond as if it's a real crisis, as if it's a real trauma. And it's not. And it, that's what tears us down. You know, that you could take a disease like Parkinson's disease. If I went around that school and said, how many of you guys, show of hands, how many of you have Parkinson's disease? Nobody's hand goes up. Why not? I just said they're off the charts stressed because that's a disease that happens in people's 60s and 70s from an accumulation of stress on the brain. You're not going to have it in high school. Hmm. But these same kids, you know, if, if we went back 50 years from now, show of hands, how many of you have Parkinson's? We'd see hands go up. Yeah because stress over time destroys us physically. So we have to learn how to let go of our traumas. We have to learn how to release things outside of our control. To be a well person, we have to keep letting go and letting go thousands of things all the time. This is a life of loss. 
If you're lucky enough to make it into your 80s, you will have lost thousands of things and people along the way. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll talk in front of those people and I'll go, how many of you are still best friends with that kid from first grade? And they'll just laugh and be like, no. How many of you have your first dog? Uh, no, no. You know, just loss after loss. Your favorite baseball player growing up, he's still alive? No, he died a long time ago. Favorite TV show? You know, everything's changed. Loss, loss, loss. Yeah. So how do you get healthy and stay healthy in this life, in this world of loss? And the answer is you have to keep on grieving and replacing. You used to be a great football player or soccer player that's great you can't play anymore you're too old go coach <laughs> you know go make yeah. a difference in the lives of kids who could play you have to keep on saying goodbye to things and replacing them mm -hmm. your wife ran off with your best friend that's really sad you got to grieve and then you got to get a new wife and a new best friend <laughs> you gotta keep... the research says that older people who do the best are the ones who learn the art of replacement they have to keep, you know, sorry that job didn't work out, but you're going to cry the rest of your life or you're going to get up and find something else. Your family needs to eat. You know, we have to keep on replacing losses. Your, your dog dies, you go in the backyard and you say, Muffy was the greatest dog ever. Let's all tell stories about Muffy and then we're going to bury his ashes. And then four months later, we'll bring home Sparky. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, yeah, because we have to keep on letting go in order to be well. And could you uh, tell me a little bit about um, one of the one of the uh, things that I loved about this book was uh, the guided imagery. So guided imagery is an amazing technique. Um, I didn't discover it, but. I learned about it and I wanted to try it and see if there's any merit to this. And hardly anyone does guided imagery. And if there's one thing that I need to write a book about eventually, it's just guided imagery. But here's what it is. Guided imagery is you closing your eyes and imagining some kind of scene. Now I'm guiding it as, as, as the clinician, as the psychologist, I'm guiding it. And we're gonna do something that you're gonna see in the privacy of your own mind that's gonna feel so real to you that the nervous system actually processes it as if it's real, just like a dream. If you've ever had a dream that you woke up and said, oh my God, that was so real. Or in some cases, you don't even know if that happened or you just dreamt it. You know, I have to stop and say, wait, did that really happen or did I just dream that? This, this is an aside, but I love this. There was a woman who yelled at her husband because he was flirting with her best friend in her dream. And she's like, how could you do that right in front of me? He goes, that didn't happen. That was in your dream. But she stayed mad at him because she saw that. All right, so a dream is a movie that you created and directed and starred in, right? It's a movie in your head. Well, guided imagery is like that, but I'm guiding it this time. And what we're gonna do is take something and put it up on a big screen in your mind. We'll, like, we'll go to a movie theater in your mind and we'll be the only two in it. I'll give you the remote. I got the popcorn. And you're, you're gonna use the remote on the big screen and we're gonna watch your car accident again. Right from the beginning all the way through to the end. And at the end of the car accident, I'm gonna ask you to go on the screen and help that younger version of you and tell them it's okay, get them out of there, tell them it's over, we're done with it. And then we're gonna get the, um, you know, the cassette from the uh, director guy and we go behind the movie theater and in the States, every movie theater has like a dumpster behind it. And we're gonna break that thing up and throw it away, we don't need it. We don't need it. I'll tell you the first time I ever used this technique, I got a call from the uh, chief of the fire department and he said, man, we need you. There's, there's a guy here who's in training for, um, to become a police officer and his wife found him in the bathroom last night with a loaded gun in his mouth and he said, I can't take this anymore. He's about to blow his brains out. And, um, and he happens to be my brother. And I said, all right, we'll get him in. So the guy tells me he was in training 
um, to become a police officer. And part of the training, they had this drill and he was accidentally shot in the face with a blank. But he says, every night in my sleep, I have the same dream. I keep getting shot in the face and I can't take it. I can't keep doing this dream anymore. And I said, okay, well, this is happening because it's not digested. It's not finished. You know, I, I talk about the mind being like the stomach that we have to digest things. And once they're digested, they're finished. But the stomach can only do like eight, 10 hours. The mind can do 70, 80 years. Hmm. So we have to actively digest it. So I said, I took him into the theater. We, you know, we went through the whole thing. I said, it's time to finish this now. You don't need this dream anymore. You're okay. You survived it. You don't even have a scar on your face. This is over. So the next week he came in and I said, you know, how are you doing? He said, I had that dream one more time that night and not since. I feel a lot better. It hasn't recurred since then. It never happened again. It was like one more time for whatever reason to finish it. And then I saw him four years later for marital therapy. I said, what about that? Oh, doc, we finished that, you know, <laughs> it was done that same day. So it's about finishing. And, and I use that technique so often when people have these one-time situations like a rape or, um, some kind of uh, accident. You know, the number one reason for PTSD in the States anyway is car accidents. Mm -hmm. and, and people say, we're going to do what? Or a dog bite or, you know, some vicious thing. It's like, no, we're putting it away today. We're going to watch the dog attack you one more time and then we're going to get you out of there and finish it. And, and the stories, I could tell you one after another after another are, were so successful because that's all the person needed um if i could tell you one more if you don't mind yeah yeah go go for it so a, a woman comes into my office she's like 32 and she says my my primary care physician referred me here because um i'm not responding he said to any of the antidepressants he's given me and i said well about how long have you been depressed? Oh, she said, oh no, I can tell you exactly how long and, and when my depression started. And she proceeds to tell me this story about how she had this brother when she was 19, he was 12, and um, she just adored him. He was her favorite person. She was like a miniature mother to him. And um, so she went shopping in one of these um, Walmart type stores and she lost him for a moment and she panicked and, and, and she's like, where is he? Where? And, and she found him a few moments later and she said, how terrible this would be if something happened to him on my watch. Well, a half hour later, she was pulling out into traffic and went a little bit too far and a big truck came and swerved at the last minute and ran over her brother and missed her completely. Killed her brother right on the spot devastated and so now this was fast forward 13 years now i'm meeting her when she's 32 this happened when she was 19 and i said when you're ready to trust me with this i want to do something to put this away i want to uh, do a guided imagery where we get to talk where you get to see and talk to your brother one more time Obviously, this is fictitious. I'm going to create it, and you're just going to watch it. And it has to be real. You have to see it. You know, you have to close your eyes and imagine what I'm saying. And if you can really see it, it's very powerful. So um, I asked her about, about her beliefs in spiritual things. And if she believed in an afterlife, she said yes. Um, I don't remember what faith she was, but um, she believed in God and she believed in heaven. So I had her uh, brother say, I'm allowed to meet with you one time. And I'm not allowed to tell you a lot about what's going on here, but I'm in a beautiful place. I'm happy. I'm well taken care of. But I don't want you associating me with depression anymore. I want you to remember me, but we had a good relationship and I loved you and you loved me. I want to always be a good thing in your life, not a bad thing. 
I want you to know I'm happy and one day you'll be here too and we'll be together again. But in the meantime, you have a life to live there and I want you to live it happily. And I said, oh, and by the way, tell mom there's no curfew here. <laughs> so, so, you know, she's, she's, her eyes are closed and she's crying and all, so I could tell it's real to her because she's, you know, watching the whole thing in her mind and the tears are flowing. And, uh, you know, we finished the sessions. I said, how do you feel? Wow, that was so powerful. That was real. Next week, I brought her back in and, and I said, how are you doing? And she said, you know, I can't get to a bad place if I try. I'm okay with this, finally. I'm finally good. You know, my brother's okay. I can, I can get on with my life now. That's an example of using guided imagery to help somebody get a, a peaceful, shuts off the stress response, like the mindset, it's okay now. You know, first of all, he's okay. Second of all, he's forgiven me. Thirdly, I'm gonna see him again on the other side. I have a life to live. I don't, I'm gonna stop wasting it, you know, by, by being miserable every day. So I got lots of those stories. I could literally tell you story after story after story like that. And that's why I'm still doing this job because it's those things that excite me yeah. to say, look, people can heal. They can heal from terrible, that's a terrible story. He never wanna ever feel what she felt when she was responsible for killing the person she loved the most, you know? But full of hope. Yeah. Full of hope that everybody can can hear. I look forward to reading the, the new book with all those stories in. Yeah, it's going to be called Praying for the Darkness. And uh, I have to tell you, I just let a patient read it um, a couple of weeks ago. I, I wrote this literally, John, in the year 2000, I finished it. It's mm -hmm. a, the story took place from 1991 to like 93 or 94. So it's really, it's an old story and it's just now going to be published. It's not a self-help book, but there's so much, it's a novel and mm -hmm. it's a true story that sounds so unbelievable so as not to be true, but it's an incredible story. I didn't make it up. I only lived it. So I can say it's an incredible <laughs> story because I didn't, you know, it's not from my, my brain. I just told what happened. I was the protagonist in the story. So it's about a couple of multiple personality patients and the amazing journey that we took together. And they both grew up um, being abused in um, devil-worshipping cults. Even though they lived in different parts of the country, their stories were so similar. And, and just crazy stuff i mean psychologists are not supposed to use that word but the stuff that they brought into my office was just crazy i look forward to it and i really enjoyed this and you. um can you can you tell me about about this book you made it what well, one of the things that i did love about it is you made it interactive yeah what was that I do self-help books. I want people to not only learn from what they read, I want them at the end of chapters to, you know, work on their own stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if there's any way that you can take what's in the book and make it personal, uh, that's what I want to do. I have a couple of other books that are, are that feature the same thing, that um, here's the concepts. Now, at the end of the chapter, let's work on yours. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's designed to be your book. Nobody else gets to read it. So you're writing really personal things and, and learning about yourself, hopefully, and, and promoting healing and promoting that place where we shut off the stress response by going, you know what? That's fine now. I'm okay with that. Whatever that happens to be. And before we finish, one one of the fascinating things that I I find about you is the TikTok shrink. <laughs> why, why TikTok and what's been the response? <laughs> um, you know, TikTok is a funny concept for me because um, 
the only exposure I had to TikTok was uh, my 13-year-old daughter dancing. What's that girl, girl's name? Charlie D'Amelio or something. She's got like 17 million followers. And it's like, I, I can't dance like that, John. I, I just, <laughs> and that's, that's what I thought TikTok was. So I never went on TikTok. And um, somebody said, you know, I've been doing these videos, uh, Mental Health Minute. And they said, you should put your videos on uh, on TikTok. It's like, well, okay. And immediately they got way more views and way more followers. I got this one video that just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's got 10,000 views and, you know, a thousand likes and like <laughs> people all over are watching these videos. It's like, good. That's why, you know, it, it only, my mental health minute only takes by definition a minute or two. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to teach something in that short period of time, something that somebody could take with them. That that's you know it's a good use of two minutes, hopefully. So TikTok has brought so much more exposure, you know, than than uh, any of the other social media. So I might as well learn to dance with with Charlie. <laughs> and you're you're to blame because I've I've just gone on to TikTok and you're the reason <laughs> I did it. So you're you're to blame. You know, if, if that's the worst thing I get blamed for today, I'll probably be okay. <laughs> and before we go, um, it's been a, a fascinating conversation and I've loved every minute of it. Um, if there was one piece of advice you could give to somebody who is suffering from high stress or trauma, what would it be? Anybody who's suffering from high stress or trauma has to stop and say, enough. I need to do something about this to feel better. And there are instant ways to feel better. You can smoke something, shoot something, you know, swallow something, snort something. You know, we understand that there's three ways to change how you feel. One of those is biochemically. You know, you can take something to alter the biochemistry of your brain. I don't really think that's the answer. You can also do something through your sensory motor system. You know, you could walk, you could uh, jump, you could run, you can scream, you could cry, you could express your feelings. You know, those kinds of things, you can do deep breathing, they all change feelings. But the most permanent way is people have to learn to change how they think. Now, healing is a process. And if you're stuck on a trauma, and it's been more than a few months, if it's been over a year, we might have to say time has done what it's going to do for you. Now you need to get some professional help. You know, it says in the Proverbs, the wise seek counsel. It doesn't say counseling's for fools. <laughs> wise people ask for help. You know, uh, uh, Clint Eastwood has a great quote, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> When my toilet is backed up, John, I don't know what I'm doing. I know my limitations. I call the plumber. I call the plumber because I don't know what I'm doing. I need professional help. You know, same thing happens if I break a bone in my foot. I don't say, let's see if I analyze this. Just <laughs> I go to the podiatrist. You know, I go get help. Get help. If you're hurting emotionally, get help. I, my, the, 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 the secret... Uh, to healing of depression is an injection of hope. The ticket to depression is hopelessness. If you said one word, tell me one word that, that uh, is most responsible for depression, it's hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, that which brings on cure is hope. And so somebody who's suffering from a trauma, who's stuck in trauma, if it's a, if it's a male who was molested as a child, he carries such shame because it's something he feels like he can't talk about. It makes him feel emasculated. It makes him feel weak. It, 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 no, you're carrying this all these years. You know, I had, a, I had a guy who said, I can't tell my wife this because if I told her, she'll be ashamed of me and walk away. I said, no, no. If you tell her, she'll have compassion and love and she'll be proud of you for being courageous enough to tell her. We're going to do this together. We brought the wife in and he told her and predictably she just loved him more for, 
for not only surviving that, but telling her and being brave enough. And, you know, healing could begin because you're, like they say in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you're only as sick as your deepest secrets. You know, you're as sick as your secrets. You got to get your secrets out. You know, remember, feel, express, release. And then we can put a new frame on it. And people heal. That's why I'm not going to retire anytime soon. That because I have a 10-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. But besides <laughs> that, I'm not going to retire because I want to help people. And there's help out there. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, thank you very much for the conversation today. And it is a very hopeful conversation. There is a lot of hope out there. And God bless you for what you're doing. You know, God bless you for having a show like this where the whole purpose is to make a difference and touch the lives of people. And thank you. I don't know how you found me, maybe dancing with Charlie, but <laughs> the fact that you found me and invited me, God bless you. Thanks, man. Thank you. Anytime. You be well. You take care, Chris. Thank bless you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.